who, raise your hand, who in here likes making like New Year's resolutions? Okay, so a few of us, okay. How many of you used to like to make New Year's resolutions? Okay, so some of the same people, you've stuck with it. Some of you really don't care because maybe you're millennial and you kind of know how the sausage is made and, and it's not worth it. Okay, so here's what I would say. Um, there's actually something really important about when you end a year and then you begin a year. It's a good reset. Sometimes we need to be able to stop something so we can start something. Um, what the end of the year I've always found allows me to do is if I'm taking the time, and I try to do this, reflect on what's happened this past year of my life and to maybe even ask, like, are there patterns that I don't like, things that I maybe want to see changed? Um, it's important. To, it's called taking inventory, just taking inventory of your life because you'll really never know what it is you want to start until you really know what it is you want to stop. That's just an important process. And so I'd encourage you if, you, if you don't make New Year's resolutions, it's okay. And it's okay if you don't stick with them. Um, but regardless, what's important is because it actually would show that maybe you have a problem and an addict and you need to get more help with that. Anyway, I'm joking, um, especially if you're new to church. Uh, I make bad jokes, dad jokes. So anyway, um, I was just thinking, though, about this for our church. Like, what's this last year been about? And maybe even what it is we want to step into more. And two words I kept thinking um, through from this past year was, um, this past year was challenging, and this past year was centering. Um, and it really is the same coin for each one of these things. It's just different sides. So um, this past year, we, it was challenging. We, there were staff that rolled off and new staff that rolled, that rolled on. And that was challenging. It was challenging to start realigning how we were going to interact as a church. We, we took a chance and made a lot of investments in some, um, in some people actually out of our own congregation that we felt like could help lead us. And um, like, for example, Rachel Robinson, who Rachel has been overseeing our mercy and justice. And if you've been a part of Christ City longer than a minute, you know that we could always talk a good game, but it was really hard to follow through with actually having a presence within mercy and justice. And, and so Rachel rolled on, and, and in the last year plus has been helping us think through that. We, we brought on, in a fuller capacity, Jamin Carter to help bring some more vision to that, but then also to take more of a load in, in preaching. Uh, Cherie Stubblefield, who Cherie has, was already doing this job of being a connections director, but because uh, everybody knows Cherie, right? And Cherie can talk you into doing anything. That's the, that's, that's the kind of person you want. So Cherie was able to come on and, and help bring so much clarity to what people could be a part of. Um, uh, Judy Davis-Lewis, who, I mean, it was a it was uh, almost a wasteland when it came to CCK, it felt like. It's not because people weren't serving, but we just needed, like, direction there. And Judy was able to come on and bring all this direction. And when I say Judy, I mean Lonnie as well, because we all know that those two come packaged together. Um, and I think about Matt Brown. Like, we, we took a big shift when Andrew rolled off, and then we brought on Matt to be a worship coordinator and to empower, like, Catherine and Josh and Janina to be leading out. There was a lot of challenges in that, but it also was very centering because it gave us some very clear direction. It takes a while to make those changes and to feel like you're centering on, onto something. Um, I was thinking about how 
like we switch locations uh, from Steam to Central. Like we had been in Steam for years, right? And yeah, it was, it was bad. It just got bad. I got to where I just really hated coming to church because I didn't want to deal with steam anymore, right? I loved Jesus and I loved the people who showed up, but I felt like my soul was dying under that lighting there. And everybody had to deal with my grief on staff. So we moved here. That was a big transition though. There was a lot of work put into it. It was really challenging, but it was really centering. Um, even the big changes we made within like um, our how we do um, partnership in the church. We always had a, a membership model, uh, and that membership model was based around basically 50 or so pages of doctrine that everybody had to buy into exactly. We made a big switch. We said, you know what? We're going to move more to a partnership model um, where Paul talks about in Philippians 1, like the partnership in the gospel. And to say, hey, our doctrine that we're going to center around is going to be the Apostles' Creed and Nicene Creed. Because if it was good enough for the early church, it's good enough for us. Um, and that was hard. People were like, wait a second, but don't we need to define people and their adjective to their theology more and more? And I'm like, I don't think so. I think we just need to create space for people to come show up and connect with God and deal with the mess. We even implemented a new vision and mission to the church, something we've been sitting on for about a year, but it's always an interesting thing when you actually draw clear lines and say, this church is going to be a place for people to belong, and it's going to be a place for people to know God. And in that, there were people who left, and all those decisions we talked about, and then there were people who came. Uh, if you were to look at our church in the last year, uh, we've been around the same size, but probably about a 40% change of, of people. It's been really interesting to see that. It's a big challenge, but it's also been a centering time. It's important for us to see that. It's important to look back on those things and see like, okay, these are the changes that were made, and here's what was necessary. And because of that, now, what is it we want to be about moving forward? Like, what's necessary and important for us as we go into 2019 with new staff, new location, new ways of doing community, new vision and mission? What does all that mean? How does it look? And what are important elements for all of this thing that we're trying to do here, not only to survive, but, but to thrive? So I was thinking about all that, and this kind of one-off we're doing this morning, we've been doing Acts for the last few months. We'll be doing the book of Acts for the next seven months or so. So don't worry, we'll get back to it next week. But I wanted to take a time just to go, okay, end of the year, let's reflect, and then let's also see what kind of passion we have going into 2019. And I felt like the church in Thessalonica was a helpful uh, place to look at and examine we actually won't talk about the church in Thessalonica specifically in Acts until later in, in, in April. So it's going to be a few months. What was really interesting, though, is uh, that chapter in Acts 17, the church was so disruptive in Thessalonica, um, and what Paul was doing there is that uh, it says there's this line from the people who were upset by the church that said, this church is trying to turn the whole world upside down. That church was full of tension. They had a lot going on. You don't, you don't say to a, a group of people, they're trying to turn the world upside down if they're just trying to like, you know, like be nice to each other and, you know, make cupcakes and, and talk about unicorns. Like more than likely that church was trying out 
was trying to do some things that weren't always the norm. And Thessalonica itself had a really interesting intersection of it had very wealthy people and it had very um, working, hard working class people. Um, and you can say that about most probably cities, but I think that really connects a lot to Memphis. You know, there's such a disparity, right? There's such a higher class and culture here. And there's also just a lot of hard workers. I mean, we're, we're kind of the city of grit and grind. I mean, and that's kind of what we're known for. And in Thessalonica, they were trying to figure out how these groups of people could interact in the church. Um, you had a lot of women who were stepping up into prominent roles uh, there. Uh, there was a lot of politics happening within the city and how that they would or would not um, connect to the Roman Empire or how autonomous they would be. And so there was just kind of this hodgepodge of things going on within this church. You had uh, Jewish believers and you had kind of these new uh, Greek Gentile believers figuring life out. And I just felt like what they were going through related a lot to us. They were in this kind of messy space. And if you have uh, been a part of a, a Discover partnership class, we were doing these once a quarter. You've probably seen me do this, but I figured a lot of you haven't yet. And, uh, and what I'm going to kind of put on the board for you here, uh, if you're interested in it and you like it, don't worry. Like you can come to a Discover partnership class and we talk way more in depth about that. But there was like this messy middle space that they were trying to occupy in Thessalonica. And I have five things I want us to talk about that are important. But before that, I need you to see the kind of container that they had and the kind of container we're trying to have, even if it's not necessarily apples to apples, like maybe it's more like apples to oranges, if that makes sense to you. So I'm going to try my best to draw it big enough for you to see here. If not, just trust me, whatever I'm saying is absolutely true, all right? Um, so, and also, I'm, I'm uh, really bad at, at anything where you write, so sorry. All right, so just use your imaginations. That's a pendulum. It really is. Um, and here's the thing with pendulums. Pendulums swing to one side to another, right? They go from this side to this side. And when, I, when we started as a church, because here's the thing we also found out this past year is we were centering in on our vision and mission and the kind of church we we're going to be. We found ourselves stumbling into a, I don't want to call it a new way of doing church because it's always been there, but it's a little bit different way of doing church than maybe what a lot of us are used to here in Memphis. Now, here's, here's how churches have a lot of times operated, that you kind of have a left side and a right side. Um, it's identity politics, identity denomination, identity, whatever it may be. That's really big today. And never before has there been such a bifurcation within our, within our polit politics and culture, Right? Uh, I mean, things really, truly feel polarized. Now, here's the thing. On a, on a right side, let's say that you have what's called the traditional conservative side. And on the left side, you have a progressive liberal side. Now, these are names attributed from one side to another, right? You, you can be a conservative person and compared to other conservative people be quite progressive. And you can be a progressive, personable person and to people within that camp be quite conservative, all right? So 
don't get too caught up in that. I'm just saying this is what culture a lot of times talks about, especially in the church. Now, if you were to talk about, let's say, things like piety, which basically means holiness, and then on the other side, you would talk about freedom. If you were to say to a traditional conservative, um, there's no freedom within the way you live your life. Uh, you're just all caught up in the lines and in what is supposed to be so right and good and holy. They would say to you, what are you talking about? It's because I have these boundaries, I finally know the kind of freedom I can live within. It's very important. It's very plain in Scripture about what you do and don't do. And if you were to say to a person on a left side, hey, you know what? Your freedom is a little bit too loose. You're interpreting Scripture the way you want on your terms and through your own cultural lens, and, and there's really, like, no holiness in that. They would actually say, like, actually, I'm finally free to truly live holy and not bound by maybe shame in following God. If you were to say to a right side, what's important to a right side is truth, and then to a left side is love, if you were to say to this person on the right side, you know what, there's no love in your truth, they would say, what are you talking about? By me being truthful to you, I'm actually being loving to you. Jesus was very truthful to people. But if you were to say to a left side, you know, your love has no truth, they would simply say, like, love is truth. Like, faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is, is love. And so what's happened is, is that these two sides, at one point in time, used to live a lot closer in the center to one another. They used to be able to have cordial conversations. But then over time, what we've kind of found within the church is, more and more, these sides have found themselves in what can only really be called echo chambers that they really only talk to each other by kind of throwing these haymakers from one side to another, whether from their CNN to their Fox News side to their Fox News side to their CNN side, whether it's subtweeting, whether it's whatever passive-aggressive way or aggressive-aggressive way we find to, like, communicate to one another. And so we kind of just hang around people who like, okay, we got this right. Like, we're talking about this the right way, aren't we? Yeah, we really are talking about this the right way. I'm sure somebody's going to come into our camp any day now because we're talking about it the right way. And it doesn't happen. Like, it doesn't happen. We, we keep thinking that people are going to show up and see it our way, whatever side you're on. And here's what's happened. Um. There are people who are tired of this, and they've started leaving those camps. And they said, I'm, I'm tired of the conversation being so niched. I'm, I'm tired of it being on a certain term, and I want it to look different. I want to have better conversations. I want to be challenged. I want to have to consider a left point of view, or I want to have to maybe consider a right point of view. Because truly, surely, I don't have it all right. You know, the worst place to ever find yourself in is for you to say, I totally got this right. It's a scary place to live. Because that means now forever, no matter where you go and whatever you bump into, your theological view and your understanding in every situation has to be defended to whatever end, even at the expense of cognitive dissonance. Because the humble person can only truly say, I think this is the right 
thing. Like I wouldn't believe it otherwise, but I may be wrong. And this is the kind of space we've been trying to create here because what I've found and what we've kind of found as leaders as we've looked at the landscape of churches, plenty of churches over here, a few churches over here, but honestly, what's there? Because there is a pendulum for people, and that pendulum on some days goes this way and this way. By the way, that's called Jesus. Has it interesting? I mean, it's interesting to me. You read Jesus, and sometimes you're like, is he a liberal? And the liberals go, oh, yes, he is. See, I told you. And then you read him, you're like, he's a bit too conservative on that view, right? And everybody's like, of course he is. And you start thinking like, he's both? Wait, I can't do that because I'm American. I have to be one or the other. Like I'm a good Southerner. Like we kind of have our sides chosen. And that's the problem because the world's opened up for a lot of people. And they realize there are wider conversations happening they're missing out on. You read Twitter and other places, and you find that there's a very niche way that we do Christianity over the last 200 years that really is just new to, like, because we're Americans. And then if we try to say, well, we kind of got it right as Americans, what? Like, our stamp of evangelicalism is the exact right way, really? So what do we do with all the Orthodox Christians or Catholics or wherever else? Well, we kind of write them off, and maybe one day they'll come around. Okay, we're back up here again, or we're back up here again. And I think there's a lot of you in this room that kind of just live in this space. You've dealt with trauma on this side, and you've dealt with like a toothless, convictionless Jesus on the other side. And you're like, can't there be both where I'm not traumatized showing up to church? Because if I don't fit the right cookie cutter way, I'm out. Or I'm like, feel like that Jesus is just another good teacher, but like he can't truly be the son of God. And I'm not saying we got it right. Say, yay, Christ City Church. I'm just like, I think this is what we're called to. And we may even get it wrong. But we're kind of okay with that for now. Because we think this is the right thing, but we could be wrong. Hopefully that's living in the space of humility. And this could really only be called the messy middle, right? Because what do you do when you run into another person in this church that doesn't see, fill in the blank, politics, sexuality, war, whatever it may be, the same way you do? What are you going to do then? We're going to run to our sides. We're going to learn how to have a conversation. Now, again, we talk through this way more in depth through our Discover Partnership class. So come to that because that's all I'm going to do there. All right? And you may want a lot more of that, but that's my hook. Come to a Discover Partnership class. All right. So this is the space that Christ City Church is trying to occupy, plain and simple. If you come here long enough, some things sound pretty liberal and some things sound pretty conservative, and that's just the way it is. And that's why I'd like to say regularly, nobody gets to be fully happy here all the time because that's like the Bible, <laughs> and that's like when you interact with Jesus, okay? So the question is this, what's needed to live in this kind of space? I think Paul helps us here. I got five things I want to run through pretty quick, five things. 
Number one is this. See those who see you. See those who see you. Look at verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. All right. This is not about, like, give me more money, okay? The way you admonish me is give me more money. It's not that. Um, we have a group of leaders in this church. Um, it's a combined group of people from the Women's Council and, and the elders. It's called the leadership team. Now, you may not know this. They spend um, at least one evening a month and I sometimes let those meetings go for four hours uh, because we don't leave until there's some kind of consensus through what we're talking about. And you can ask our spouses. I'm, I'm always sorry for the spouses. I always, if I see a spouse of somebody on the leadership team the next day, I always say, I'm sorry. Um, there are people in this church, and in case you don't know who they are, Sarah Ford, Stacy Martin, Rachel Remington, Suzanne Abadie, Joyce Souter, Tom Souter, Tim Reed, Drew Haltom, Jamin Carter, Chris Rowland. These people sit around a table for hours every month wrestling through what this messy middle space looks like. Talking about hard things, disagreeing on things. Disagreeing on things. And like a group of people who don't live in unanimity. Trust me. I mean, when you talk about that group of leaders around that table, there's some over here and there's some over here. But what they're all trying to do is have a conversation about what does it mean to live in this space? Because there are people in this church that they know that like need to be pastored well. These people spend hours every month, every week, seeking to see you as a church. Because you know, our greatest need at the end of the day isn't to have all of our problems solved. Our greatest need at the end of the day is simply to be seen. That's why when we see in Exodus 2.25, it says that God heard the cries of his people and he knew, yada, he, he saw them. That's why when you read Jesus in the Synoptic Gospels, and even in John, everywhere he goes, it says he saw that person. And then he felt compassion. You never truly can make the right kind of decisions for other people until you see people where they are. But here's the thing. Those people need to be seen as well. Because it's hard seeing when you're not always seen. It's hard to know that there are people caring for you unless I tell you there are people seeing you and caring for you. And the only way this space works is if you have those kind of people leading in those kind of ways, willing to constantly be willing to see and sacrifice. So what does they need back? Money? No. I mean, if you want to give them money, it's fine. But really, it's just like seeing like, hey, thank you. I'd encourage you, for one of those people I just mentioned, just find them and say, thank you. They don't really need anything more than that. It's like, thank you for spending time seeing me. And in doing that, you actually are seeing them. It's a really simple thing to do, but really important. And Paul understood that, that for people to live in this kind of space, others who are leading need to be seen. It really helps with the lack, with like making sure there isn't burnout or thinking that you're underappreciated or it's not worth it. Because trust me, this is really hard. Like, I got people that around that leadership table just wanting to tap out sometimes. Like, oh my God, it's so much. Stop. 
right? And I'm an eight. Like, I just love the more conflict, the better. Like, bring it on. We can do it all. And everybody's like, you need to stop, all right? We need some sobriety here, and you're not acting that way. But I'm like, no, like, see people. See them where they are. Let them know that, hey, what you do is important, and I'm, I'm grateful for you in that. There's a quote in your bulletin from Elizabeth Gilbert. She said, in the end, though, maybe we must all give up trying to pay back the people in this world who sustain our lives. In the end, maybe it's wiser to surrender before the miraculous scope of human generosity and to just keep saying thank you forever and sincerely for as long as we have voices. There's no big payback that's needed. It's just be able to find one of those people at times and say thank you. And it's not just them, it's even staff. Thank you, Rachel, Cherie, Judy, Matt, whoever is working on staff. Thank you for giving time. Josh and Janina, Catherine, thank you. I know it's a lot. Because trust me, none of these people I just mentioned do this for the pay. So it's important to see people. And even your story group leaders, it's important to see them. People who take time to create a space for you to interact and have like good, hopefully healthy conversations, um, to simply say thank you. It's a lot. And here's the thing. It's not shaming you to be like, if you don't do it, you're a bad person. It's just saying, hey, this is what it means to be in this kind of space. So to see those who see you. Second, create a peaceful space. Verse 13 says, live in peace with each other. Live in peace with each other. Interesting why he would say that. If you're in a group of people who see it all the same way you do, there's not much need for peace, is there? It's just like, let's high-five this thing and have a good time. It's interesting. I think he pulls this, and a lot of other um, scholars think this as well, that what Paul's pulling from is a line from Jesus in Mark 9, and I'll, I'll put it on the screen here for you. Mark 9, 50. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. All right, so what does salt do? It spices things up. We're a spicy church. What can I say? All right, salty. Spicy, salty. Can that work? It's going to work because I've got the mic. All right, so both. It's salty. It's spicy. Some, some of you don't like it like when it's got too much flavor. That's too much flavor, right? Too much salt. Well, I don't like the way you see things there. Okay, fine. I'm going to leave. Nope, you don't get to leave. You can't leave. I'm sorry, this is Hotel California. You can leave if you need to, but don't leave. Like, no, I don't, I don't like how this, I don't like where you are, so I'm going to go back over here and like not interact with you. No, that's not being at peace with one another. That's living in avoidance. And that means you and I, whoever's doing this, will have to always avoid people who aren't like you. That's a really lonely way to live life. Jesus seemed to be able to foresee and understand that people who live in a space where there's saltiness, where there's a lot of flavor and a lot of difference, you're going to have to like live at peace with one another. And that means it's going to take a lot of attention to create that space. So to live at peace with one another, create a peaceful space. Number three, patiently live in the tension. Verse 14, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. Three kinds of people he lists here that need the most care in church. 
three kinds of people. The first kind are those who are disruptive to you. All right? Now, disruptive, it's this idea in the Greek who they just don't seem to get it. And maybe it's because of their comments, right? Maybe it's because of how they um, come across. Maybe it's because of their lack of understanding. Like, you could be someone on this side over here and then someone on this side and go, oh my God, how could you say that? You're so racist, right? And maybe their comment is racist, no doubt. But then that may not be the best way to interact with it. What if you just need to be able to talk to them and go, hey, that really came across racist. Did you mean for that to be that way? Like, that's a, that's a disruptive thing. Or to this side over here, when you're interacting with someone that just seems to have it all together and they're so right because they're so enlightened and so progressive, and you're like, hey, you're really kind of arrogant. Do you mean to come across that way? Like, are you saying that I got all this wrong? Like, both can be disruptive, both can be disruptive, and it's important to, like, be able to interact with those who are disruptive and help them, like, go, hey, let's talk about this. That's what this idea of idol means. They're disruptive in the community. And there's another group of people that says those who are easily discouraged. This is a hard space to live in. Otherwise, everybody would want to do it. I have literally tried to find other churches around the country who are doing this. I found about three so far. I'm not joking when I say that. And I've called them like, hey, you're creating space for all kind of people to interact together, and you're kind of basing it around the creeds, and that's it. How's that going? Oh, it's hard. Yeah, there's a reason why. And I'm like, okay, thank you. That's a good conversation. What do you do next? They're like, I don't know. What do you think? And I'm like, great, unhelpful. It's easy to be, it's easy to be disheartened in this kind of space. So that means we have to come along with the other person and like encourage them. It, it, it says, it literally tries to translate feeble-minded, but that's not helpful. I mean, it's not trying to say that someone's just, they can't do it mentally, but sometimes we just have a hard time getting there mentally. That you see someone who's different from you and how they understand and how they read scriptures different from you. You're like, what do you do with that? I don't, and you just want to give up. It, it can be like faint-hearted. And then the third group of people, he says, are those who are weak by societal standards. So many times we can infuse this kind of be strong, I have it all together, I'm curated kind of person. I got the right Instagram feed. I got the right places I like to go to. My obscureness is cool. And people just can't relate to it. And it's really like offsetting. What does it mean for us to be a space where all kinds of people get to show up regardless of what their financial situation is? regardless of what their, like, addiction background is, and to say all of this gets to, like, be together, and it's going to be really hard. And I know that society outside of here says that you're, like, missing out and getting it all wrong, but what if we talked about it in a different way in here? What if, like, we just came alongside those people who, from societal standards, are weak? To be patient, be patient in living in this kind of tension. Number four, he says, he's saying, be good to each other. Look at verse 15. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. 
Now, a lot of this was covered in last week's sermon, because last week we talked about this King Herod Agrippa, who was power hungry. He was grabbing for power, and how his death at the end of Acts 12, which is very visceral, that it says that he was struck down by an angel of the Lord, eaten by worms, and died, all right? Like, I don't think you've seen a movie go down that way before, all right? So, like, it was just very visceral what happened there. And it wasn't trying to say, you see, God's going to get you if you don't do it his way, as much as it's trying to say, like, this grab for power in life can only go so far. That ultimately, if we do not recognize who has true power, God, we will always be proxies trying to grab something that isn't true through our own self-will. And what we tend to do, having the right view is a power play. I've got the right view on this. You've got the wrong view on this. We create a dichotomy, make it bifurcated. It's a power play. You can't have a conversation around that. You'll have to go back to an echo chamber. The only way you can live in a space like this is to go, okay, this is a view I have. I'm pretty sure I'm seeing this the way, the right way, but I'm really open. Maybe I got this wrong. Can you help me see it your way? Can we talk about this? That's the only way this kind of space works. And there's nothing about that that's comfortable. It's very uncomfortable. And there's a reason why churches don't want to interact and do this, because it'd be much easier to go to one side or another. And by the way, this isn't wrong. These top kind of quadrants up here, it's not wrong at all, at all. If you want to say it's wrong, that's your problem. It's not wrong. And it's not that somebody is off or isn't like cool enough if they don't live in this space. Sometimes like we've had people leave this church that have said, hey, I just don't want to leave asking more questions than getting answers every Sunday. I've literally been told that. And I've said, okay, I understand. I don't want you to go, but I understand. I have others say, hey, you're not progressive enough in how you view fill in the blank, and we need to go. And I've had to say, okay, I understand. I wish you wouldn't go, but we bless you. It's hard to live in this kind of space and in turn, instead of like trying to push against the other person, well, you got this wrong and you got this wrong, instead, like, I'm just going to be good to you. To not repay back, to not push back on power plays, but actually like be good. Just be a good person. Be kind at how you interact. So to not repay back evil for evil, but always strive to do what is good for each other and everyone else. And number five, find acceptance in what God is up to. Verse 16, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I hate this verse. I don't like it. <laughs> I really don't like it. And I know hate sounds big. Maybe that's too big a word, but it's not. It's really hard. I don't like that it's there. I don't like that it says rejoice always. I am one of those unhappy people I've ever met in my life. All right? My wife told me this past week, my daughter has looked at me and she says, just be happy. My four-year-old's like, just be happy, daddy. And I'm like, okay. Like, I just, I don't know what it is about me. Maybe I need, if I identify as an eight Enneagram, I need to tap into my seven wing. I'm not, I don't know. But like, I have a hard time just kind of rejoicing. And that's why some of you, like, I like being around you because you're good at rejoicing. But all the, all the people who identify as fours and eights, you know what it's like. 
Like life, life is just horrible and really sad. It's really tragic. And God may never be faithful, all right? And that's my discomfortable little blanket I want to snuggle up with. I don't want to rejoice because I see so much wrong. I see so much off. But it says rejoice. I don't want to pray regularly. I don't want to constantly go back to God because sometimes I'm just ticked at God. But I have to keep entering into that pain. And I definitely don't want to give thanks in all circumstances. Nothing makes you step out of your self-pity and rage more than being grateful for what is. That's why I don't like it. The worst part is when I ever try to like sit down and do journaling and write, do like a thank you list. I think I've done that once or twice this past year. <laughs> talking about taking inventory. I just don't want to talk about what I'm grateful for. I want to talk about what I'm missing out on and what should have happened. Let me tell you this. You cannot have peace in that kind of circumstance or that kind of mindset. You cannot move forward in passion and anger for what could be when you're always living. Because I know personally when you're always living and what is it? And I think our brothers and sisters within the 12-step community get this more than anyone else. There's this big book within the 12-step community called the AA Big Book. It's a blue book. And the first 160 pages is like how the 12 steps work. The last several hundred pages are these stories of people over the last 70 plus years who've been trying to live this stuff out. And there's a famous like page in the AA Big Book. It's called page 417. And anyone who's a part of any kind of 12-step recovery knows when somebody says page 417, you roll your eyes and you're like, oh God, there it is again. And here's what it is. It's a page about acceptance. And I want to read to you just this line that anyone who's a part of any kind of 12-step movement, they know this line, and they both hate it and love it at the same time. And here's what it says. And acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I am disturbed, it is because I find some person, place, thing, or situation, some fact of my life unacceptable to me, and I can find no serenity until I accept that person, place, thing, or situation as being exactly the way it is supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolutely nothing happens in God's world by mistake. You know what's so hard about that line there? Because it's all over the Bible. It's called God is sovereign. When you got a sovereign God, though, the question is, do you have a good God? Do you have a kind, loving, just, benevolent God? Which is why we needed Jesus. Because we weren't really sure with how the world was interacting up in that point. And then you have someone like Jesus show up, and he is the face of God, of the Trinity. And we now know what God is like when you look at Jesus. And we know that no matter what's going on, somehow, some way, things are exactly the way they're supposed to be at this moment. Does that mean that things have to stay that way? No. Does that mean that we have to just accept all that's wrong with the world? No. But it does mean this that perhaps you're not missing out as much as you think you are. That maybe God's more involved than what you realize. Maybe you're not that far gone. And maybe there still is hope. You only can get there if you have a God big enough that's willing to come meet you wherever you are and is good, loving, and faithful in that. And until I can accept life as what it really is, I'll never be a part of the change of what life could be. So do we have a hard time accepting life on life's terms? You better believe it. 
But friends, let me tell you something. Until we learn how to accept that there are people who are different from ourselves, that see things differently at different places in Scripture, and that we need to have a conversation until we can accept that, we'll never be a part of the change of what could be. Because Memphis has been great at all kinds of churches that can live in an X quadrant up to the left or right. But what more and more people are asking is, could we have better conversations? And I think one of the keys to that is learning how to accept a person where they are, even if you don't agree with the person where they are. It also means practically in your own life, accepting what's going on and knowing that, like God willing, you can be part of the change of what it could be like moving forward. And I think these five things are really important for us to consider, to wrestle with as we go into next year so we can live in this kind of difficult space and maybe even be inviting and attractive for others who want to come be a part of it. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go to the table and find encouragement from our Lord as we consider what does it mean to live in these ways. Father, thank you for this time and this morning. Thank you that we can wrestle with such hard things, difficult things, and know that um, things aren't all for wrong because they're difficult or messy. And what we need is encouragement to be able to um, live in that messy middle, not in a clean left or right side, to not live in any kind of arrogant or pretentious way that um, we're just going to live in a way that hoodwinks a person to see it the way I want them to see it but to have enough humility to go, hey, I think this is it, but I could be wrong, and I want to understand you more. And so I pray as we have come from this past year of more centering and alignment through all the challenge, and as we step into 2019 as a church, you would give us all that we need as we um, see those who see us and create a space uh, for the tension to live at peace with one another. to seek to do good and to find acceptance in all things, that you are that benevolent and sovereign and kind. We love you and thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.